Yeah. You can clap for my buddy Jeff. He deserves it. Hey, good morning, OCC. How are you doing today? It is great to have you with us, whether you're in the room or you're one of those several people joining us online, whether you're online here in the Ville or at the lake or anywhere around the world, even back in Illinois. Got some family joining us online today. It's good to have you with us and it's good to have you here. Well, we are now finally on the other side of yet another contentious election. And this was not the first time we have seen people slinging mud and throwing mud at candidates and, you know, back and forth. And I don't think it's going to be the last time we see it. Every four years, we are promised that the upcoming election will be the most consequential in our lifetime, will be the most important one for us. And make no mistake, every election cycle is important. It is consequential because our elected officials are given a whole lot of power. They write our laws and they govern our institutions and they affect our lives. But there is a difference between what's important and what's most important. And while politics are important, they are not the most important thing. And it's important for us to remember that and keep that in perspective. So it's not by accident that we are wrapping up our series on the separation of church and hate the Sunday after we all voted. And I've had more than one person tell me, Fitz, whatever you're doing this Sunday, it's too late. (laughs) They told me, whatever sermon I've got ready for today, it's too late because we've already voted. We've already done our part. The election's over. It's probably going to be contested. It's probably going to get ugly. But our part's done. So whatever you're having. But I believe that today's message is right on time. Because what we're going to take a look at today, God's word for us this morning, is as important for us on the backside of the election as it is prior to it. For the last several weeks, we've been allowing God's word to be our guide to help shape the behavior that we need to have and the attitude that we need to live with to help us separate the hate from the church. We began this journey a few weeks back looking at how we need to behave with civility. And that's something that never goes out of fashion. And then we took a look at how we need to to honor others' dignity and respect others' dignity. And that's something that's always necessary. Last week, my buddy Brian did a great job of helping us understand how we can demonstrate humility. And that's important always. And today we're going to see that Jesus' goal for us is to always pursue Unity. Always pursue unity. But unity, there's not enough, there's not, there's not enough unity right now. There, there's not enough forces working towards unity. We've been in a season where people have been dividing us and splitting us and pulling us apart. And it's a challenging season. And there's no doubt in my mind that our enemy, Satan, wants to see nations pull apart like that. He takes joy in watching people create division and put more space between themselves and the people who disagree with him. And our enemy is working hard to split those nations apart. But way more important than what he wants to do in the nations is what he wants to do to the church. I'm totally convinced that Satan wants way more for us to bring that baggage of division and disunity into the church and work against each other here and to have division and separation here in God's church. And I think that might be why Jesus' prayer, his high priestly prayer recorded in John 17, the prayer he prayed in the garden after he celebrated a communion meal, a Passover meal with his friends, the prayer he prayed before he was arrested and handed over to eventually be crucified. The prayer he prayed for you and for me and for all Christ followers everywhere. He prayed 
for unity. Listen in to what Jesus prayed and listen to the unity language he prayed for, for us. John 17. Now I am departing from the world. They are staying in this world, but I am coming to you. Holy Father, you've given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name. There's power in the name of the Lord, isn't there? There's power in the name of our God. We would do well if we leaned into that power more often. Protect them by the power of your name so that, there's the purpose clause, he's telling us why. Why does he want this for us? So that they will be united just as we are. Now let's pause here, get your mind around that. This is Jesus, the Son, praying to God the Father. This is God the Son praying to God the Father that we, you and me and everyone else, all of us Jesus followers, would have unity, would be united as God the Father and God the Son are united. That is a bold, audacious prayer. I love the prayer that Jesus prays for us here. Going on, he says, I'm praying not only for these disciples, talking about the ones he had at that time, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. For all who will ever believe in me. You know who that is? That's us. That's you, that's me, that's all the Jesus followers all over the world throughout all of time. And he's praying for us. And he says, I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that, here's a purpose clause again, so that the world will believe you sent me. Our unity, our oneness, lends credibility to our mission and our message. Our unity, our oneness is our mission and our message, a oneness in Jesus. Jesus goes on. He says, I've given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. Are you catching that theme? There's a lot of oneness going on here. There's a lot of unity. I'm in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity. Perfect unity. Could we say that our unity is perfect, church? Jesus prayed for us. May they experience such perfect unity that the whole world will know that you sent me and that you love them as you love me. Our unity is what lends credibility to our mission, to our message. That the world may know. Listen, if there's only one thing you walk away hearing today, I I want you to hear this last little bit. Why are we supposed to be unified? So the world will know that God the Father sent Jesus the Son as our Redeemer, as our Messiah, and that God the Father loves you as much as he loves Jesus. That's a whole lot of love. That's a whole lot of love. You are loved by God. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. But that also means that the person next to you and the other people around you, and even the people you disagree with, that they're loved just as much as you are. That's a big deal. And so we need to be unified in the pursuit of that. So our unity is what lends credibility to our testimony. Our unity is our testimony. And imagine if we are disunified. And think about this. This is tough, right? Unity is challenging. Unity doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come easily. Unity is something we have to work for. It's tough to get to. And part of that is because we each have 
a different background. We, we each were raised in a different home with different values, with different perspective and experiences. And so we come to the Bible carrying different experiences and, and a different background. We come to Jesus and we, we expect different things from Jesus and we, we perceive him a little bit differently. And so the way that we come to all this and the way we arrive at church, we've got different backgrounds and experiences that shape us. So we have different perspectives and, and preoccupations. And that shapes how we see Jesus. And so we don't always see Jesus the same way. If we just think about how artists have depicted Jesus throughout the centuries, we see this shift and this kind of difference in how people have have viewed him. For instance, if we go all the way back to the ancient Orthodox church, you have this very stoic Jesus. He doesn't look too happy here. This this Jesus, I'm not sure I want to hang out with this Jesus, but this was their picture of Jesus. Now you fast forward a few hundred years and you've got the stained glass Jesus with the lamb on his shoulders and this happy Jesus in our old church buildings. Fast forward uh, a couple hundred years from then and you've got our movie Jesus from the 1970s in Hollywood, a very piercing blue-eyed white-skinned Jesus. Fast forward a couple decades after that and you've got like a Chuck Norris superhero Jesus. I'm not sure exactly. It was this how he ascended into heaven. I don't know. I haven't found in the Bible where Jesus flew from place to place. Maybe he did. I don't know. Um, But this is like superhero. That's a tough dude, Jesus. Like the super JC on his. And this is one artist depiction. And then you got the Jesus that that everybody's going to love because how do you go wrong with buddy Jesus? I, you know, now some of you, you laugh at this. Some of you cringe at this. Some of you are like, I can't believe he put that picture up there. That's, that's unholy. We can't see Jesus that way. And some of you kind of think that same way about the, the Orthodox picture of Jesus. So we've got these different depictions of Jesus by artists, but way more important than what those artists think of Jesus and more important than how we picture him physically, though that is important, is how we imagine Jesus. Because the human tendency is for all of us that we imagine Jesus being more like us. We tend, when we think of Jesus, to think that if he were here today, he would probably be a bit more like me. We, we assign our own cultural norms and forms to Jesus, thinking he's more like us. After all, Jesus was a Middle Eastern man from a couple thousand years ago, yet we would depict him in a movie with very fair skin and piercing blue eyes. That's just not it. And more important than all that is how we assign different cultural ideas to him as a reflection of the things that concern us most, that worry us most. Texas Republican Christians have a different picture of Jesus than Chicago Democrat Christians do. But more important than those people is you. I mean, let's get to the heart of it. How do you picture Jesus? How do you see Jesus How do you picture him? Does he think like you? Would he live like you? Would he talk like you, have the same dialect as you? Would he worship the same as you? Would he vote like you and believe like you? How do you see Jesus? And and this is our great dilemma because so often we're trying to fit Jesus into a mold like us when really we need to be fitting ourselves into a mold like him. We, we are on this journey where we should be learning to live and look more and more and more like him. And we might start there, but so often what happens is we get to the point where we just think Jesus is like us. We end up with a Jesus we're really comfortable with. Because of course he would vote and believe and champion all the causes that I do. 
problem is that if I do that and you do that, then we get this disunity thing going on. This is the great adventure and the great challenge of the Christian faith. That, that we, as we journey with Jesus, would be transformed to look more and more like him. This is why I use the phrase Jesus follower, because that, that, that lets us know we're following still. That we don't just come to Jesus at a point in time, make a decision, say, yes, I, I believe now, and then we go on happy on our way. No, we follow, and to follow him means to follow in his steps and to learn to live and love and look more and more and more like him. And we do that by entering into the word of God. We spend time getting deep into God's word and allowing it to get into us. As we read God's word, we meditate and we pray and we study it. And we look at what it says, not just the easy verses, but all the verses and what that means for us. And we allow it to come alive in us and through us and to us. And we spend time meeting with God in prayer, like actual prayer, not only the times where we give God the longer list of things we want him to do in our world, like he's some cosmic Santa, but we still ourselves before a holy God and we listen. We ask the Holy Spirit to move us and prompt us, to nudge us, to change us, to transform us to help us identify the sin and what needs to change in our life. And we spend time meeting with other Jesus followers, instructing one another, sharing with one another, learning from one another, growing and being challenged. And as we do that, if we humble ourselves before God and we enter into a journey with Jesus, then we, we will inevitably be changed by him, transformed more and more and more. That's what happens. Jesus will always challenge us and change us and transform us. He'll challenge our preoccupations. He'll challenge our presumptions and our perspective and our preference and our attitude. So church, this means if none of that is happening for you, then something's wrong in your walk with Jesus. Something's off in your journey. If you look back six months, 12 months, a few years, several years, and nothing has changed in your life as you've been journeying with Jesus, then you might not be journeying with Jesus. You might need to re-up your commitment and reframe how you approach Jesus. Because all of us, until the day we stop breathing and enter into glory, all of us should be transformed more and more and more into the image of Christ being transformed and changed into his likeness, that we more and more and more love and look and live like him. So that's the great challenge for us. And and this is why it's important, because the more we would live on mission with Jesus, allowing him to change us and transform us, the more we do that, then the more unified we will be, the more all those other things, all those other priorities and preferences get pushed to the side. And as we live moving towards Jesus, when we do that together, we can't help but be unified as we're walking towards a common goal. And when you think about it, this is really the ironic thing about how we approach politics in our nation, especially as Christians. Now, Politics is important. It matters. It just doesn't matter most. But so many of us, and I've seen this for the last several months, so many of us would say, I have the secret of where Jesus is. Jesus, if he were here, he would, he would believe this and vote this way and support this candidate. And this, this is the Jesus platform. But the problem is somebody else would say, no, 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 no. This is the Jesus platform over here. And somebody else said, no, no, you both are wrong. Here it is. And all of a sudden the church is getting divided on where we stand and we're letting Our politics shape our faith instead of our faith shape our politics and we're allowing it to define us. But here's why all that's ironic. is because Jesus never played the political game. He stood apart from it, above it. He just walked away from the politics. 
He had the opportunity all the time. On several occasions, he was invited to get into the political game in that first century by friends and followers and foes alike. One of the instances, we find it in Luke chapter 6, when the people saw Jesus do this miraculous sign, the miraculous sign, basically he fed thousands of people with a lunch on silver snack pack, right? He turns this thing into a miraculous meal, feeds all these people, has his disciples do it, and the people are like, whoa. And so they exclaimed, surely he's the prophet we've all been expecting. And when Jesus saw that they were ready to, get this, to force him, to be their king, to force him to be their king. He slipped away into the hills by himself because he didn't want anything to do with that. We fast forward later on after Jesus' high priestly prayer that we looked at in John 17 when he's standing in front of Pilate, the Roman governor, the one who's in charge of the people who had conquered Jesus' people, who had oppressed his own people. The Roman governor, he's talking to him and Jesus says, to him. He says, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. And you better watch out. But it's not why I'm here. My kingdom? No. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is a higher kingdom. My kingdom is a different kingdom. I'm, I'm not of this kingdom. But listen, Jesus had opportunities so many times that he could have lashed out against the Romans, against this oppressive governing people who had conquered his people. He he could have spoken against them. He could have led a revolt against them. He he could have taken an earthly throne. He could have led an earthly revolt in taking the throne and and been the king. He never did. He, He never did any of that. And here's why. Because Jesus did not come to endorse the kingdoms of this world. He didn't didn't play that game. Because that's not what he's about. He came instead to build the kingdom of God. He, He didn't come to endorse the kingdoms of man. He came to establish God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. A higher kingdom. A more significant calling. And when we mess this up, when we get so focused on the kingdoms of this world that that takes more of our energy and our priority than building the kingdom of God, then we're getting it wrong, church. This is our calling. This matters. This matters most. And this is way more important. And as soon as our preoccupation with the kingdoms of this world hurts our testimony for the kingdom of God, we got to stop and reverse what we're doing. Jesus did not come to establish an earthly kingdom. He came to build the kingdom of God. And as though to put an exclamation point on this, when he did it, he invited guys from totally different political parties into his inner circle, into his core 12, into his small group, if you will. He he had Simon the Zealot. The Zealots, these were guys who hated the Roman Empire. They hated them because they'd conquered them. So, So they were illegally and covertly trying to lead a revolt, wanting to overthrow the Romans and take back their land and take back their people. And and they were like working against them. I mean, these guys were the anti-government people to the extreme. And Jesus says, Simon, why don't you come be one of my guys? And then you've got Matthew, the tax collector. The tax collectors at the time, you could not be in tighter with the Romans than to be a tax collector. As a Jewish person, you could not be more of a 
go government in person <laughs> to be the tax collector because your income stream, your livelihood, your career, your well-being, your protection, all of your life was wrapped up in the success of the, of the Roman Empire. And Jesus says, man, why, why don't you come be one of my guys too? So you've got the zealot and the tax man. And these dudes would have had words and they would have had strong opposition and they would have had tremendous differences. If you want to understand how significant this would be, this would be inviting Donald and Joe to come be in your small group. All right? Who wants to host that one? How many of you remember that first debate? Who wants to open up your house and have the Don and Joe come hang out and talk to Jesus in your room? Forget hosting. Who wants to lead that and try and facilitate that group? And that's what Jesus did. He brings these guys this incredible clash of perspectives and priorities. And he says, come, be part of my circle. And what these guys learned as they followed Jesus was they had to lay some things aside. There were things that mattered to them, but those things weren't the most significant things. They had to put those things aside. And what they learned as they did this was that their spiritual identity is way, 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 way more important than their political identity. Political identity is significant, but it's not even in the same category. It's not even in the same ballpark as our spiritual identity. And what these guys found was that as they journeyed with Jesus, the mission was more meaningful. As they journeyed with Jesus, the cause was so much greater and grander. That to walk with Jesus, to follow in the steps of Jesus means that his cause is our cause. That the kingdom of heaven is now our cause. And that the mission of Jesus becomes our mission. And that's the most meaningful mission we can ever be on. And so to walk with Jesus and to journey with Jesus is to unite around that. And this is why that's significant. Because as we do that, the more we wrap ourselves into the mission of Jesus, the more we give ourselves to help everyone we can find and follow Jesus now and into eternity, then the more united we become. That's a unifying mission because everything else just seems so far secondary to that mission. That we might have disagreements, but if we can link up on what we're doing to, to go to the same direction, to say, we gotta help everyone we can get to know Jesus, then I can put some other things to the side. And, and this is tough. It's tough because this kind of unity, it's the unity Jesus prayed for. It's the kind of unity God desires for us. And I say for us because God wants it for us because that's such a better way to live than being divided and angry and hostile and separated. But to be on mission together, moving toward a grand cause. God desires that for us, and Jesus prayed for that. But that's tough. That doesn't come natural. That doesn't come easy. And this is why decades later, the Apostle Paul encouraged the church at Ephesus with these words. He says, therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. We just end there, can't we? What a beautiful thing that we've been called by God. So live worthy of that. It says, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. Basically, do what you saw in all the political ads, right? Do just the opposite of that. And make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. He starts to pick up that oneness language from Jesus' prayer, doesn't he? There's one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God and Father of all who's over all, in all, and living through all. Man, 
that the gospel is a unifying force. As Paul was writing these, these words to the church at Ephesus, to these believers, the, the overarching point of his letter to them was that you'd had these, these men and women who'd grown up Jewish and then began to follow Jesus, but they had Jewish roots. And for Jewish people, there were two types of people, Jewish and non-Jewish. The non-Jewish people were called Gentiles. And for centuries, forever, Jews and Gentiles had not gotten along. Just, there was a division there. But you had these Jewish Christians and then you had these Gentile Christians and they're coming together in the same spot and they're trying to figure out how to do this thing. And Paul's writing to them to let them know, listen, there's no longer Jew and Gentile. There's one. In Jesus, there's one. You have oneness in him. That the gospel is unifying. It draws us together. It links us up. But this takes work. This takes effort. That's why Paul wrote to him. He says, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit. Make every effort. It does. It requires effort. Earlier this week, I had a phone call with a member of our church. We had been exchanging some emails, and then it was like, oh, man, we better just talk on the phone because this could get a little hairy. You know, sometimes the emails are trying to retone and this and that. And he had sent an email to me. I responded back, kind of going back and forth. And both of us said, man, we would much prefer to sit down over a good cup of coffee or a good meal, but our schedules didn't allow, so we'll just do this thing over the phone. And what I was so grateful for was how the guy made the effort to pursue unity. He, he chose to have a conversation knowing that we could have some disagreement, but he was gonna make the effort to keep us unified. He, he could have read harsh tone into my emails, even though I intended absolutely no harshness in them at all. He could have read harshness in, but instead he did not. He chose to trust that my intent was pastoral, not pushy. He, he could have jumped to conclusions and made some accusations, but instead he chose to dialogue and ask questions. He, he could have just gone a different way, but instead he chose to create an opportunity for unity. And I'm grateful that he did. And through that conversation, I don't think we agreed on every methodology for what we'll do here at OCC. But at the end of that conversation, I guarantee both of us were better and better for it. And we're grateful for that conversation. Because at the end of that conversation, we could both say, I'm on board with the mission. That I'll link shoulder to shoulder with you and do everything that it takes to help everyone we can find Jesus and follow him forever. And we might disagree on some things. But those things are secondary and we'll chase this mission and we will go rattle the cages of hell. We might not agree on all of it, but we're unified on the mission. And I'm better for it. I think he's better for it. And I think we're both pretty excited for the days ahead here at Oklahoma Christian Church and what God is gonna do. And if we have more people linked up like that, committed and unified to the grand mission, I think we'll be a better church for it. But it's not always easy. Put all the politics of the world aside. We all know that there's a certain amount of politicking that happens in the church because we all come from different backgrounds. This church represents people from 
so many different church backgrounds. We have Catholics and Methodists and Baptists and like 20 different kinds of Baptists. And we've got Lutherans and, and Presbyterians and on and on it goes. We got people who are old and people who are young and everyone in between. And we got people from different ethnicities and nationalities. We got people from other countries who've landed here. And we've got people who make a lot of money and people who are just getting by. And we got people in between. And we got urban and rural and, and everything in between that. And then on and on and on it goes. And what that means is we've got all these different people who have all these different perspectives which means they have all these different preferences for how we should do church and what we should do at church. And we've got different, different expectations for the way we should do things and why we should do them that way and how we should do them. And here's what that means. That from time to time, your church leaders, and including myself, we're gonna make decisions and you might not like it. From time to time, I'm gonna make a decision for our church to go in a particular direction for an initiative or an outreach. And you're gonna say, man, I just, I, I don't know. So you might not agree with what we're doing or the how of what we're doing, but I think you will always agree with me on why we're doing it. Because every time we make a decision, we run it through this filter. Is this the thing that will have the greatest impact to help the most people we can come to know Jesus Christ and follow him into eternity? That is our mission. And so we will do what we do for that end. And there are times... There are times when we're going to make a decision that can't please everybody. That's impossible. We're not going to please everybody. And I don't even think we should try to please everybody because that's not our goal. Our goal is to please God, not us. And if we're honest, a lot of times we over-spiritualize our preference. We make it sound really spiritual and biblical and the God thing when really we know it's just the way we want it to be done because we're comfortable with that and we like it most. So we're not always going to be able to please everybody on that. And nor should we. And, And to be totally honest with you, there are times when out of that everyone segment, we're going to look at a certain segment of everyone, and we're going to chase just certain someones. And the someones that we will give preference to every time are the next generation. Now, as I look around the room and I see some people with a little more salt in their hair, people with a little more age to make them a little more sage, I want you to know this does not mean we don't care about you. This means we need you. We need you to jump on board. And so you might not love the fact that we're chasing after the next generation, but I think you'll agree with the fact of why we do. Because when your kids and your grandkids are my age and your age, I want them to follow Jesus with even more devotion than you and I do. I think you'll agree with why we make the decision to go after the next generation. Because when your kids and my kids are at this stage of life. I I want them to encounter Jesus in such a meaningful way here at Oklahoma Christian Church as kids and as students that they've encountered him and, and they've had the opportunity to receive the gospel in such a compelling way that it lands so deeply in their soul that they never stray from that. And that we raise up a generation of Jesus followers who go out to change the world in the name of Jesus our Savior. Church, that's why we do what we do. And because of that, that means there are going to be times when we choose some music that you and I might not prefer. And there are times that we might choose some strategies that you and I might not prefer. And there are times we might even choose some style of clothing that you and I might not prefer most. There are times we might make some changes on some initiatives and we might make some strategic changes here at the church different than what you and I would prefer. And yeah, I keep saying even different than what I would prefer because I'm going to be honest with you. 
There are things that I prefer that I'm just realizing I'm starting to get a little dated in some of my preferences. And if we're going to reach the next generation, it can't be about what I prefer. And honestly, I'm enough self-aware to know that I'm kind of weird sometimes. And the things I prefer, most other people might not. So I got to put my preferences aside and I got to look to what matters most. And what matters most is to help as many people as we can follow Jesus forever. And if that means that I got to put my preference to the side and I got to put my way of doing things to the side for the salvation of somebody else every single time I'll do it. And I'm convinced that you will join me in that. Church, may that be where our unity is. May that be the thing that links us together. So when we make a decision, and it'll happen, when we make a decision that's not a decision you prefer, that's not the thing that you love, let me, let, let me give you an out. It's fair to say, I don't love that. I don't love what we're doing and how we're doing it. That's okay. But it is never okay for any of us to rally the troops and try to get other people to dislike the decision. Because what Jesus calls us to, what scripture commands and demands of all of us is that we do everything we can to fiercely preserve the unity of the church and to do everything we can to celebrate why we're doing what we do. We might not, might not always like the method, but we can agree on the mission. And we'll do whatever it takes to help as many people as we can find Jesus and follow him into eternity. If we could be unified on that, if we could put our preferences aside, then this church is unstoppable as a force for the kingdom of God. And if we can do that, the best days of OCC are ahead. I want you to listen again to the language Paul used. He, he said, there's one body and one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who's over all, in all, and living through all. And what's the point of all the alls? It's that all these earthly kingdoms and all these earthly rulers and all these elected officials... They're temporary. They're fleeting. And eventually they'll fail. But there is one who stands over and above all of it forever. All the agendas and all the policies and all the programs will come and go. And, but there is one who stands above it all. And we have this one glorious hope for the future. You know, one of the things that gets me most excited about heaven is there's no elections and there's no campaign cycles. There's one who sits on a throne. He always has, he always will, and it's never gonna change. And there's one agenda. Won't that be refreshing, church? Amen. (laughs) There is one. So I know, I know that this week some of you were disappointed because your candidate lost and some of you were excited because your candidate won, but I wanna encourage you Don't be misled into thinking that an election victory is where the victory is or an election defeat is where the defeat is. Because in a few years, we'll be right back at it. That's what happens. It's a cycle every couple years. We're right back at it. More ads, more campaigns, more challenges, and somebody else is gonna be another contender and it's gonna be right back at it and they'll be contested and they'll be messy. And a few years after that, it'll happen again and again and again. But over and above all that and through all that mess, there is one who sits on the throne forever. So church, our hope 
is not in the fleeting and sometimes failing institutions of this world. Our hope is not in the governments of this world. Our hope is not, it does not and never should and never will and never can come from Capitol Hill because our hope comes from an old rugged cross that stood atop the hill of Calvary 2,000 years ago. And our hope is not in the peoples and the programs and the policies of our governments. Our hope is in Jesus. That's it. That's where our victory is and that's where our hope is. Our hope and our victory is not in a politician who's been elected. Our hope and our victory is in the Savior who resurrected. Amen? Amen. And if we, if we will be unified in that, knowing that our hope and our victory is in the Savior who stands alive again, who conquered the grave, who conquered death, who came for us, who restores us, redeems us. And if we can be unified on mission to him and for him and through him and in him, then nothing will stop us. And that's where our unity is. May all other things become far secondary to that mission. Let's pursue unity and guard it at all costs. And may we never forget that our victory is in Jesus alone. Let's pray. God, we're grateful. We're grateful that we live in a land with such freedom that we get to vote, we get to have a say-so. And we live in a land with checks and balances in our government. But God, we know that as good as this place is, it's still imperfect. And we know that as good as this place is, our politicians and our policies and our programs, they'll still ultimately fill us. I, our hope cannot be there. And, and God, I pray that even if we were in a land without any of that, a land of persecution and turmoil, that we would still be the kind of people who would gather and worship and praise you and celebrate because our victory is in you and in you alone. God, that is our prayer. So we pray at this time as our country has been divided as our country. It's just messy right now. God, we pray for healing. Will we pray for our next president? Will we pray for all our elected officials that they would govern in a way that brings honor to you, that brings glory to you, that they would submit to you. And we pray for them to succeed in your name. And God, we know We know if healing is gonna come to this land, it's not through the politicians, it's not through the government, it's through us, your church, your people. So God, may we be a force of bringing peace, of bringing healing, of bringing hope, of bringing change, of bringing the gospel that brings life. And God, may may we be a people so fiercely committed to your mission that all those things that divide us would be put aside. And that we would go after the thing that is always most important. God, that we would seek to bring you glory and honor and praise. Oh God, unify your church. Unify your people and work through us. All for your glory and all in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.